Amen, amen. Feel free to have a seat. Man, on Good Friday we gathered together as a body, and in that time when we were together, we had opportunity to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and, and it's this incredibly somber moment where we pause to reflect on him hanging on the cross. And in that moment, when we're reflecting upon his agony, when we're reflecting upon his sacrifice, our, our thoughts and our affections are called to sorrow. They're called to sadness. But man, that's, that's not the story of Easter. That's not what we do when we gather on Resurrection Sunday. And so as we gather together today, we focus not upon Jesus on the cross, but we focus on the empty tomb. Amen? Amen. And so as, as we do this, I find it particularly helpful for us to, to look at the resurrection through the window this morning of Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you begin to make your way there to the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's likely one in the back of the pew in front of you. I'd love for you to take that out. And flip to the front of the Bible if you don't know where the book of Hebrews is located. The large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are verses. And as I said, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home. Let that be a gift from us to you. And this morning, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. Hey, let us read it together. The Spirit inspires and the author writes. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let me pray for us once again. Father, I'm thankful for your word, for its clarity. God, we are thankful for your spirit and our dependence upon him. God, I pray that in this time, as Jesse prayed, that your spirit would flow freely in our midst, that it would flow from my words. God, that as we have sung praises to your name, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. Father, I pray for those of us who are in this room who name the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we would be strengthened and encouraged, that we would be called back from our sin, that we would confess our sins to you and meet you ready and able to meet us with forgiveness. God, we pray for those in this room and in this hearing who do not know you, God, that they are far from you, that today that we would see them move from darkness to light. Your scripture tells us in Ephesians 2 that without you we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. But God, with you, we are made alive. And so God, our prayer for them is that you would do a work in their hearts by the power of your spirit and you would call them from death to life today. God, that you would be honored and glorified in our midst as we give our thoughts to the careful study and application of your word. And we submit these things to you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So as our service opened up, Justin gave us this kind of summary of really kind of where we've been over the last several weeks. And you'll notice that it, it pairs well, that it matches with what, the, with what the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of his word. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
Now, the first way that we recognize that God has spoken to us is through creation. So creation, in the Bible's recounting of creation, begins this way. When you open up the Bible to the first book, which is the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God. So in the beginning, God created what? He created the heavens and the earth. And so into the vast expanse of nothing, God spoke into nothing, and he drew out creation. And in the midst of drawing out creation, in the midst of creating everything from nothing, he created humanity. And he created humanity to be perfect, and he placed them in the midst of the garden. And the man's name was Adam, and the woman's name was Eve. And what we read quickly in the midst of this is that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. In the midst of the perfect harmony, in the midst of the beauty of this garden, they rebelled against God because ultimately they said in their hearts, we want to be like you, we don't want to follow you, we want to be how we want to be, and we don't need you for this. And so God expels them from the garden, and, and, and in the midst of this, and in the midst of their sin, what we read over the course of the Old Testament is that God is perpetually calling people back to himself. And so God creates a people, he creates Israel, he creates this nation that's meant to be a light to everybody else around them, so that when people walk up and they look at them and say, you're Israel, aren't you? And they say, yes, and they say, we noticed this, there's something distinct about you as a people, you don't worship the other gods of the land, you don't engage in the other practices of the people, there's something distinct and different about you, and that would always and forever only be their relationship with God. So God takes his people, he calls them up from captivity in Egypt, he delivers them over into the promised land, and even in the midst of the promised land, we see that they leave God, they rebel against God time and time again. So what does God do? He raises up prophets. And the role of the prophet to the people of God is time and time again to say, come back to the Lord. Come back to God, come back to God. Come back to God. In the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their waywardness, in the midst of the hardness of their heart and their idolatry, he says to them over and over and over again, come back to God. And so we read, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we say, amen. But look at the change here. He says, but in these last days, something decidedly different has happened. He's not spoken to us through many different ways and many different times. He's spoken to us singularly through some one person. He's spoken to us by his son. So we see this change happen here. We see this fundamental change transpiring, and it's something decidedly new. No, God's message hasn't changed. He's still going and saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. But now his message of return, now his message of come back, isn't mediated through prophets. We're not seeing him do these things through some other intermediary. We're seeing him do this through the Son. One of the most beautiful ways that we see the Son's speech and we see the Son's actions is in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 9, and verses 10 through 13, we see a beautiful picture of Christ's attitude and his actions towards wayward humanity, saying, come back to me. In chapter 9, Jesus has just called Matthew the tax collector to come and to follow him. And look at verses 10 through 13. It says, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So here's the scene. Jesus is laying down beside the table. He's hanging out with a group of people. 
that within the first century that they would say these people are unfit for the kingdom and these people are especially unfit. The sinners are especially unfit and the tax collectors are betraying God's people by allying themselves with the Romans. And so both groups of people, neither one popular, and this is who Jesus is spending time with. So the Pharisees, the religious establishment, come up to Jesus and it says, and they saw this, and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with worthless and worthlesser? Why does he hang out with these people? But it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in this, we begin to see a reflection of the heart of Jesus. Perhaps in the midst of your own life, you feel today self-satisfied. Perhaps in your heart today, you feel completely independent. You don't feel that you really need God. You don't feel like you really need Jesus. You feel like the message of Jesus is a message not for you, but it's a message for somebody else because you feel in your heart well. Recognize that the course of the Bible communicates to all of us that we are stained with the sin. We are stained with the sickness of sin. And Jesus specializes in the sickness of sin. And Jesus calls you and I towards himself so that he might show himself to be the great physician, so that he might draw out of us the venom of sin so that we might be made whole. Why was Jesus spending his time with sinners and tax collectors? Because no one else would. Because no one else wanted them in their home. Because no one else wanted to break bread with them. Because nobody else wanted to come close to them and have fellowship with them because everybody else presumed that these people were unworthy of God. But we hear the message of the Son. We see the empathy of Christ. And we see God's mercy on display gathering close to them and saying, come back to me. Now, what the author of Hebrews does in the midst of this is something remarkable. See, he doesn't just want his readers to walk away from this and saying, God moved from speaking through a bunch of people to speaking through one person to simplify his mode of communication. But what he does in the rest of this passage is show us particularly why the Son is worthy to speak for God and to show us particularly why it's so incredibly important that this morning April of 2021, why this morning that you and I hear from the King of Glory. Amen? Look at what he goes on to say about the Son. Look at the the latter part of verse 2. Speaking of this Son, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so in this, we read the the, the first little line says, whom he is the heir of all things. We get the sense that that he is most important, and through whom he created the world, we get the sense that we are dependent upon him. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 1 and 16. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Now catch this, and all things were created for him. All things are created for him. So he inverses the order. Now over the course of our lives, you and I have this, this, this 
kind of tendency to move towards this ditch of recognizing ourselves as being most important. Now, we, this isn't something that we would say very often to people around us because we also like to have friends. But if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, we like to consider that, that we are most important. Within our hearts, within our, within our selfish motivations, we have this tendency to put ourselves first. We are first in the pecking order of when we do things. We are first in the order of, of thoughts of how to take care of ourselves first. And so we are those flying through the skies of life when the oxygen mass drops. We're placing it on ourselves first and looking at our kids thinking, oh yeah, you. Oh no, you still. And this is just kind of how we are and how we find ourselves over and over and again. But look at what we read of Jesus. It says, Jesus was appointed the heir of all things. All things exist for Jesus. All of creation exists for Jesus. You and I, as created beings, exist for Jesus. So we recognize that to hear that requires a radical reordering of priorities for us. We recognize that if Jesus is really the heir of all things, if we really owe all allegiance to Jesus, if we really owe all our energy to Jesus, if we really owe everything in us to him, that it requires for you and I to take a massive step back from the first place in our lives. The Bible tells us that he's the heir of all things. You recognize that everything ever created, that every person that ever lived, owes their allegiance to Jesus. And this includes you and it includes me. The Bible tells us that he's the heir of all things. All these things return to Jesus. But it also says, through whom also he created the world. Now, along with the idea of thinking that we are first and we are best, we also like to live under the assumption that we are completely independent. I, I, I don't need anyone. I don't need any help. I certainly don't need an all-powerful creator God in heaven helping me out. But occasionally, there, there, there happens to us this, this, this uh, an, an accident or an awareness that we are decidedly unable to accomplish things on our own, right? I mean, I had just one such event uh, two or three months ago. I was uh, exercising with a friend of mine, uh, bending over, then all of a sudden it was like somebody went bing right on my back, and I went bang with the weights, and they dropped on the ground, and I fell on the ground, was rolling around thinking, this is the big one. But it's going to be fine. I'm going to be okay. Uh, a day or so later, I'm crawling on all fours thinking, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be okay. And I was completely and utterly dependent upon my wife, who's five foot three, to help me go to the bathroom which is humbling. <laughs> My kids say, why can't you get up and come play with us? I'm like, I'm coming. In six weeks. But God has this wonderful habit of reminding us of our vulnerability. He has this wonderful habit of reminding us of our fragility. He has this wonderful habit of showing us our complete and utter ability to be independent of him. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus created all things. I mean, before you and I existed, Jesus was out there and God was using him to spin the whole world into existence. Before your parents recognized they were pregnant with you, 
Jesus knew you, and he knew what your name would be. Every exercise of, dependent, of independence you try and engage in, God stands back and he just says, this would work so much better if you come to me. Your relationship with your wife would work so much better if you would come to me. Your relationship with your kids would work so much better if you would come to me. Your relationship with your friends would work so much better if you would come to me. You and I are created not to live lives independent of God, but to live lives of radical dependence on God. We recognize that Jesus is the one that created both time and space. Listen to how far this goes. Listen to how far this goes. Everything you'll ever see. And all of the invisible world was put there, was ordered, and is held there by Jesus. He created everything for all time. Nothing exists that was not created by Jesus. So the author moves in this discussion of just kind of his power and his majesty. And he translates in verse 3. And he begins to show us kind of who Jesus is now. And what Jesus is doing in the midst of these things. Look at what he says. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. So we begin to get a sense of his majesty. We begin to get a sense of just how incredibly great he is. Now, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 34, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he's meeting with God, and he's walking down, and he's got the Ten Commandments before him. And as he comes near to the people, Moses' meeting with God has been so incredibly impactful, and with the glory of God shining on Moses' face that every time somebody sees Moses and they see this holdover of the glory of God on their face, on his face, they shield themselves from it because the afterglow of the glory of God on the face of Moses is too powerful for them to behold. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 17, takes some of the disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and as he gathers together with them, Moses and Elijah come there. Jesus is transfigured, and he shines this beacon of brightness on the hills. And the disciples begin to recognize there's something distinctly different about him. The glory of God is the glory of Jesus. The passage says he is the exact imprint of his nature. What he's communicating to us here is that Jesus isn't some type of lesser than God. As if they're going along, you know, they're kind of this supernatural Walmart, this deity Walmart. I'll take a little bit of this God. I'll take a little bit of that God and put it in the cart. Oh, look at this. Some Jesus on the lower shelf. He's telling us this Jesus, he is very God of very God. So the glory we see from the Father in Exodus 34 is the same glory we see on Jesus in Matthew 17 in the exact imprint of his nature as if I had a ring on my hand and I placed it in something and I pulled back. It leaves its mark when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus says of himself in John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. There is no difference in deity between God the Father and Christ the Son. And this is the one who calls us back. This is the one who looks in your heart and he says, come back to me the agent of creation, the heir of all things, the one who shows the radiance of the glory of God, the one who is the exact imprint of his nature. And y'all look at this. He says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Now, in the book of Genesis, God speaks into the expanse, and the world jumps into place, right? He speaks, and he separates the sea from the dry land. He speaks, and he calls light from out of darkness. But what we read in the midst of these things isn't some past action that has no bearing on our present. What we read in the midst of these things is that right now, even now, the breath you're drawing in your lungs, you are able, you are capable, because Jesus wills it. In the midst of these things, we recognize that now and even now, as you sit there and as the muscles in your back are holding you upright, you are able to do this. You are not falling on the floor. Gravity is not crushing you like a bug because Jesus, through his power, is willing it in place. All your afternoon plans, your burnt hands or whatever ways you want to flaunt the fact that you're not Jewish, all of these things are capable and will happen solely because Jesus wills it. You see, Jesus isn't passive in upholding these things. Jesus is not there as God has wound up the clock. Jesus is not there watching the seconds tick by over the course of the universe and saying, oh man, I'm not sure how these things are going to work out. Jesus is actively willing these things to be. So far, so impressive. If Elon Musk somehow manages to sucker enough people to fly a terrific distance, to land on a distant red planet, to walk out and say, whoops, red, I'm going to go home now. These things will only ever happen if Jesus wills it. If, by some far stretch of the imagination, they're able to colonize it, step out, begin to plant things, see them grow, and all of these things come to be with amazingly fast internet. These things will only ever happen if Jesus wills it. We need him today. And if you're a Christian in this place, in the midst of your waywardness, in the midst of your distant heart, what we recognize is that Jesus is there and he is calling and he is preserving you. He is keeping you steadfast in the midst of your waywardness. And what he says to you is, come back to me. If you don't know Jesus, if you're living far from him and distant from him, and occasionally within your mind you hear, who is he? What is the purpose of my life? What, I, what should I be doing in my life? This is Jesus holding you fast. This is, not some, this is not some thought you've come to on your own. This is not some wild notion that you're in a moment of desperation. This is the grace and mercy of an all-powerful creator, God, holding you in the midst of this thing, not allowing disbelief to run over your life, but drawing you back to himself. This is Jesus, just as he's upholding the universe, upholding your life and saying to you, come back to me. Now listen, we've read some pretty remarkable things about Jesus and what he's accomplished, but don't miss this last one. Don't miss this last one. This son that God has spoken through, listen to what he says. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, in the midst of these things, we recognize the Bible tells us that sin demands a sacrifice, that sin demands being atoned for. But what we read of Jesus isn't that he's there and he's, he's thinking, oh my goodness, John has sinned again. I need, to, I need to get in the midst of do these. Oh my goodness, Matt has sinned again. I need to get in the midst of I need to do this. Oh my goodness, Janie sinned again. I need to get in the midst of I need to do this. 
But how does it read? After making purification for sins. The author of Hebrew expands upon this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 through 12. He says, every priest, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Let that sink in. Occasionally, you and I have the mistaken assumption that if I do enough right, at the end of my life, if the balance of good outweighs the balance of bad, God's somehow going to look at me and say, it's pretty impressive. Look at the good ledger. Look at the bad ledger. There's no amount of good things you can do. There's no amount of bad thoughts you can drive from your mind. There's no amount of waywardness that you can abstain from. There's no amount of keto spiritual diets that you can be on. They're going to get you there. He says these things can never take away sin. But there's good news. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, Jesus' sacrifice of himself on Good Friday is a one-time-for-all sacrifice for all of humanity, opening up a way for all of us to come to know and be forgiven by God. He says he offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, what does it tell us when he sits down? It's finished. It's atoned for. They need need add no goodness. They need add no sadness. It is finished. And see, we read that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. In the most powerful way that we have been spoken to by God through his son is on the cross. And in the midst of these things, I want you to hear this, that Jesus is speaking to us even now. And what he says to us is, come back to me. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, in verses 28 through 30, He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, maybe you are a Christian, but you've not been in church in some considerable amount of time. Maybe for you, as you consider this last year, you say COVID has been the greatest thing in the world because finally people have quit asking me to come to church and I've had this socially acceptable excuse for not attending. But in the midst of these things, what you found is that you're struggling. What you found in the midst of these things is that you are struggling with depression, you're struggling with doubt. You're not a people person, but you find yourself in the midst of these things just craving to be around community. 
craving to be around people who know your name and who know your story, and they just want you around anyway. The message for you this morning is come back to me. God has created the church to be a place of community. He's created the church to be the body of Christ where as we gather together in this place, we manifest, we display the body of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Lay down your weariness, lay down your burdens, and come back to him. Maybe it's not a matter of physical distance, but maybe for you, if you're a Christian in this room today, and you look recently at your life, and, and you look through and consider where you have been, you recognize that you've not been physically distant from the Lord, you have been spiritually distant from the Lord. Sin is winning a battle in your life. You find yourself sinning with, with ever-increasing ease. It's just easier. What was once hard has gotten easier and easier and easier. But this morning, as I've shared, and this morning as the word has been presented to you, you feel this familiar pull in your heart. You recognize this longing for intimacy with God that you've not felt in some time. For that's God's Holy Spirit speaking to the Spirit inside of you. And it's God calling you and reminding you that you are His, that His blood was a sacrifice for your life, that He raised you from death to life, that your life, that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you, that in the midst of these things, when you feel that pull, this is God saying, come back to me. Abandon your sin, abandon your burdens, Sin is a heavy burden your shoulders can't carry. Give it back to Jesus. Abandon your sin and return to the lover of your soul. But listen, maybe this morning, where you are, you've never known Jesus. You've never given your life to him, but you're, you've lived in the South for a fair amount of time, so you're somewhat conversant and you understand Jesus, God's Father. You recognize we're not Catholic and this is why we're not doing this over and over again today. You've not had to get on your knees a single time in the service, and for that you're very thankful. But as we're in this service, and in the hearing of God's word, you begin to sense something is shifting and changing in your heart. My favorite pastor is a guy named Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish guy who preaches up in Cleveland. And I heard him preach recently. And in the midst of his sermon, he just stopped and he said something that I, that I, that I think was so incredibly powerful, but it's so incredibly true, no matter which church you're in and which pastor is preaching. He said, there's no convincing argument that I can put to you that could save you. There's no clever turn of phrase, there's no emotive appeal that I can give to you, cast upon you, that is powerful enough to save you. If, if in this moment, in this hearing, you begin to have a sense that God is speaking to you, 
you begin to have a sense that what God is saying to you is to lay down the burdens of the sin in your life, to come and be forgiven, and to come and know Jesus. None of this gets attributed to Ridgecrest. None of this gets attributed to the songs, to the lighting, to the words we sing. None of this gets attributed to the sermon that is preached. All of this only gets attributed to the role of his spirit. Listen, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to have men and women across the front. They would love to pray with you. Some of us, what we need to do in the midst of this time is you're not coming forward to ask that Jesus will come into your life. He's already there. What you need to do is to come forward and confess sin to some of these men and women to ask them to pray for you. Because you recognize Jesus has always been there, but over the past months, years, that you've been walking away from him. And some of us in this moment, when we open up and these men and women are down front, what you need to do is to submit yourself to a holy God and say, God, forgive me. I have not known you. I have not followed you. What I want to do right now is to know you. If you begin to feel this move, it's the Holy Spirit of God calling you who the Bible says are spiritually dead, to abandon that deadness and move to life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Hey, let me pray for us as the men and women are making their way across the front and the band is headed back to the stage. We're going to have two songs that we sing as we pray together. Let me pray for us now. Father God, God, you have given us an opportunity to know you and to know you by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray for those of us who are in this room who we know you as Savior and Lord. But God, we feel far from you. God, that this morning would be a reminder of our great dependence upon you and our need for a Savior. And God, I pray for those who might be in this room or in this hearing who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus. God, they do not know you as Savior and Lord. God, that your spirit would be moving in their hearts and stirring in their minds. God, calling them to yourself. It's God, our prayers that you be glorified, that you would be honored as we gather and we submit ourselves to you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.